all about love today. Who doesn't like talking about love? I mean, it's always a good thing to, to do. And the title for our lesson today is Relationship-Based. A great church is relationship-based. A church that helps our friends to see God for who he really is, how great he is. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? Let me ask you to shout the best you can out through your mask. What does it mean if a congregation is going to be relationship-based? What might that mean? What might that actually look like? Listen. Caring for one another. Yes, absolutely. What else might it look like? Stefan? More than meetings, right, yes. Going to talk to people, speak to them if you don't know them. Even if you don't know them, perhaps even especially if you don't know them. Maybe, yeah, yeah, good point. Taking that initiative, we'll talk more about that in a minute. What else might it mean to be relationship-based? Having difficult conversations and hanging in there when we annoy each other, which does happen, doesn't it, from time to time? Akin? Enjoying spending time together. Then you know you're relationship-based, right? That is one of those fruits of being relationship-based. Knowing one another and being invested in each other's lives. Knowing one another, being invested, and that's an important word, isn't it? In each other's lives, right. Implies more than just the superficial, yeah? I think, often I think of what it means yeah. A commitment that goes beyond our feelings. Yes. Mm, very good point. Yes, very important. Anything else? Community. A real community, a sense of community, practical and a sense of a feeling of community, belonging together maybe. Yeah. I think we have an instinctive understanding of what it means on some level, because human beings are designed for it. Now, what I'd like to do today, a little bit different from last week. Last week, we began our series on what it means to be a great church, and we talked about the first and primary, most important thing, which is that if we're going to be a church that helps God look great to this world, we need to be God-focused. So we talked about being God-focused last week, and we looked at the church in Antioch as a great inspiration for that. This week, a slightly different approach. We're going to look through a lot of scriptures. I'll put them on screen, and most of them are on the Watford Word handout. And I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures, not so much to teach about each scripture in detail, but more to create the picture of God's heart and vision for his people. And then we'll talk at the end a bit about what that might mean on a practical level for us here uh, today. So we're going to go, first of all, by uh, talking about God's vision. God's vision for relationship. We'll talk about God. Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and then the early church. That's what we're going to do today. So firstly, God's vision for relationships. Of course, if you're going to talk about God's vision for anything, you really have to start at the beginning, don't you, in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, we find this, that God made you and I, humankind, he made us, as it says there, in his own image. In his image, in his, you could say, nature. Not his image as in something physical, but his image in terms of his character, his nature, the kind of being that he is, we share in that, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. In other words, he created humankind for relationship. And we see in chapter 2 that God is concerned that Adam is lonely. 
Isn't it nice that God cares that people are lonely? And he forms Eve because he recognizes in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And let me say this for any of us who aren't married, this isn't a verse about marriage specifically. Certainly you can see Adam and Eve as a, if you like, the first married couple. But the point about God creating Eve is not that he's looking for Adam to have a marriage partner. He's looking to solve the problem that Adam has, that he is alone. So this heart of God for humans not to be alone is, is the same for whether you're single or married or divorced or widowed or a widower, or it doesn't matter whether you're young or old. God doesn't like it when people are alone. He knows we need companionship. And so he creates Eve to be that companion. And then in chapter 3, we find that God wants to have a chat with his people, with Adam and Eve, who he's created. And he's walking in the garden. Why is he walking in the garden? Because he's looking to have a, a conversation with Adam and Eve. And even grant, granted the anthropomorphic parts of this, that you, you know, some of this is symbolic, some of this is perhaps literal. I don't think that matters at this point for what we're talking about. The point is that very, at the very beginning of God's word, we learn that God does not want people to be lonely. He created us for relationship, specifically, of course, a relationship with him. And they're not just on a personal level. Sometimes in Christianity, you have these extremes where some people would say being a Christian is all about having a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God as Savior. Now, of course, there's truth in that, but it's not all about that because God has always wanted a, a family, you could say. In 2 Samuel 7, David says this, How great you are, sovereign God, sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There's no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. To make a name for himself. To perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. You see how often he talks about your people. It's God's people. There's an Old Testament, Old Covenant image there of God forming a people to make him look great. That's what actually part of the point here. But then it's also a New Testament vision of God too. 1 Peter 2. Peter writing to the church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, not just royal priests individually, but a priesthood together, community, a holy nation together, community, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were kind of individuals scattered, whatever, but now we're a people, a people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we say amen to that. God has always wanted a family. Not that he needs a family. God has no needs, right? God is God. But because of his nature of love, he wants to share his love. And that means sharing love not only with individuals, but with groups of people with, in, in community. And perhaps we might think about what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3. Looking at those seated in a circle around him, he said to the people there, here are my mother. Remember he was asked, your mother and brothers are outside. They're looking for you. And he says, but no. Here are my mother and brother, my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was creating a family. And so this is, this is what we are. We are Christ's family. 
We're not a, to use the labels, you know, we're not a church as a, as a, as a de designation of a word. We're a spiritual family under, under God. So God had a vision, always has, for, uh, for relationships, for his people to in, in, enjoy relationships, and for him to have a relationship with people. But then Christ, Jesus, has a heart for relationships that is rep, reflect, a reflection of God. Jesus wanted to create amongst his followers a culture of love. There's a lot of talk about culture in communities and in corporations these days. Now, it used to be about just all about productivity. Uh, back in when I was in the, <clears throat> growing up in the 70s and 80s, it, it was just about how much you could produce. These days, there's more talk about culture in organizations. Of course, I somewhat suspect that sometimes it's about getting the culture that will be the most productive. But nonetheless, the headline is talking about culture. Sometimes in church, perhaps we don't think enough about the culture of who we are, the culture of this congregation. Jesus said in verses 34, 35 of John 13, a new command I give you. It is new. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. Everybody out there will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. Notice, he doesn't say here or anywhere else in the Gospels, this is how you become a member of a church. He says, you're going to be identified as my people by the way you love one another. Not by the way that you personally love one other person, but the way the, way the culture is of those of you who gather as my disciples. Remember, Jesus had a church of 12 apostles who went with him through his life, right? And he loved them personally, but as a group. And thus, he said, you must love one another like this. It's a culture of love. And I would say... To, to, make, to oversimplify things, but I would say being a member of a Christian community is about committing ourselves to offer one another a Christ-like love. If we are committed, devoted to offering one, one another a Christ-like love, we would then learn the other things we might need to learn. There are many things to learn. There are doctrines. There are beliefs that are important that we should hold together in a unity of the essentials of the Christian faith. But what bonds us together is not that we intellectually believe a certain thing. What bonds us together is that we are committed ourselves to love one another with the best Christ-like love we can offer each other. It's about culture. And not only is it about culture, but it's about sacrifice. In John 15, not long after this passage, Jesus said this to his followers, to his church, if you like. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. It's often been said, the Christian life isn't complicated. It's hard. Love is hard. I mean, sometimes it's easy because you, when someone loves you, it's quite often, usually easy to give the love back, right? But a lot of life isn't about responding to the love you receive from another person. It's about deciding to love. Uh, I see a lot of parents here, in, and, and uh, you know, sometimes our children can be 
surprisingly, a little hard to love. No, no, I, maybe, not, maybe not your children, but I, I have heard that it is like the case. And I'd have to say to the children here who still live at home, you may find it sometimes a little difficult to love your parents. Maybe, maybe that was just me growing up, but it, love isn't complicated. The Christian life isn't complicated, but it is hard. There is sacrifice involved. And the inspiration for us is not what the love produces, but where the inspiration comes from, which is Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his friends. See, that's the inspiration for you and I to love each other when it's difficult or when it's not convenient. Jesus will do whatever it takes to make more friends. He wants friendship. He doesn't want followers in the sense of just somebody that to be there to be counted amongst a number of people in a room. He wants friends. He wants you to be his friend. He wants us to be a... It's the Quakers that are called the Society of Friends, isn't it? Yeah. I like that. A Society of Friends. A friendship, well, we'll talk more about this in a minute, a friendship that takes time to develop, but nonetheless that we're devoted to. Friendship is the goal. Thirdly, the spirit. The spirit's bond creates these kinds of relationships. So that God has the vision, Christ has the heart, you could say. Thirdly, the spirit creates the bond. The early Christians were transformed. Take the scene in Acts chapter 2, you remember? Pentecost. And the Spirit comes down, what seems like tongues of fire, there's this rushing wind, and they speak in all these languages, and then the people around them, the Jewish people there for the festival of Pentecost, they, um, they say, are these Galileans, how do they speak to us in their native language? And then they list out who they are. Uh, we've got quite a few nations here. We could list out a lot of nations, right? And that's what they had. They had Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans, Arabs. That's a lot of different cultures, a lot of different nationalities, a lot of different geography, and a lot of different uh, uh, languages. And they are now bonded together by this experience of the Spirit, by the understanding that Christ is Messiah, that they need to be repentant and baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 of them do it. And then these people who are strangers up until this point, they, weren't, they didn't know each other. The people in Rome didn't know the people in Libya. They met in Jerusalem for this one occasion. These strangers become friends. These strangers become church. These strangers become family because of the bond of the Spirit. And we are, we are very mistaken if we think that we can be a relationship-based church without having the Spirit. And we may have different opinions here about what that may manifest as such, but we need the Spirit. And the book, Acts chapter 2, which we don't have time to look into in detail right now, tells us that how we receive the Spirit is by recognition of Jesus as Messiah who died for us, by repentance and by baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Thus we will receive the Holy Spirit. And I would just say if any of us haven't traveled down that road yet, we haven't been there yet, I'd encourage you to study that and think about that and let's perhaps have a chat about it. Because if we're going to be a relationship-based church, we must share in the Spirit. So that's what we see here. They're utterly transformed. And then, because we have the Spirit, we're able to do the hard task of love. Romans 5, verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So because we have the Spirit, we have God's love in us. Thus, we're able to love others with the love of God. It's because of the power of the Spirit. Or first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. 
The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So those who have the spirit have the ability to love in the way that God would wish that we could love. The spirit's bond creates the kind of relationships that make a relationship-based church. And then let's talk about the early church. We read this verse, uh, these verses, I think, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, where we talked about being together. And here they are together, the early church, after they've repented and been baptized, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They're devoted. Breaking bread, prayer, they're filled with awe. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continue to meet together in the temple courts. No one's checking up on them, by the way. They weren't reminded to go there by WhatsApp. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Wow. What a community. And what did God do? God added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's several reasons why God, I think, was enabled to do that in that community or through that community. But one of them was that they had genuine, deep devotion to one another. They didn't want anybody to be in need. So I'm going to put a slide on screen that I know none of you can read. And, and that's deliberate. I don't, you can try and read it if you like. But I think I put the references to all these verses in the uh, handout here. The early church was characterized by what you might call one another Christianity or each other Christianity. On the screen, I have listed all the positive and negative commands as to what uh, a church or a congregation, a family of God, should be characterized by and be doing, the one another passages, the each other uh, passages. So Colossians 3, don't lie to one another, is one of the don'ts, right? Or if you like uh, Galatians uh, 3, no, Galatians 5. See, I can't read it either serve one another, or bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6. Forgive one another in Ephesians 4. I mean, there are lots of them. And the reason I put them up there is I'm not going to go through them all now. There isn't time. You could do a 15-part series on all these, and it would be great. The reason I put that up there and I put it on the handout is so that we can take it away. Read those. Study them. Think about what it means to be a one another church, to be an each other church. What does that mean? How could you be more somebody who practices those positive and negative commands in the right way? What difference might it make to our community, to our relationships, as in our desire to be a relationship-based church? What difference might it make if we simply practiced one of those every day? Just one. You've got lots to choose from. I forget how many there are. I did note it down. There's 53. Stefan knows. He can, he can quote all of them for you later if you want. <laughs> He probably could. No, I know Stephen. He memorizes a lot of scripture. 53 of them. If you did one a day, I mean, that's, that's uh, getting on for two months. And that, what would it be like? If our, what would our relationships be like if, how many people in the room here? Is it 40? Maybe? Let's call it 40. If 40 of us practiced one a day for 53 days, somebody can do the maths. Is it? Two th- Is it? Something like that. It's a lot, isn't it? Think, think of what it would do to our culture if we deliberately practiced these on a daily basis. Wouldn't it be amazing? Now, I dare say a lot of us are doing a lot of these, but 
What about the ones you avoid? See, this is the thing question for me. Oh, a lot of those, if you give me the list, I'll tick them off. Oh, I do that, I do that, I do that quite regularly. You know, I do that sometimes, could do it a bit more. But there are some I would want to put a big line through and say, no, that's just not me. Which are the ones you don't want to do? I think those are the ones we need to focus, we need to pray about. Because any congregation that is lacking any of these is going to be weaker than it could be. God won't be able to do all he wants to do here. But if we practice them in a Christ-like way, what, what an amazing congregation. I mean, I think this is an amazing congregation already. But how much more amazing could the work of God be if, if we took this holistically together, all of it, to form the kind of community, a relationship-based community? That is God's vision. See, we're not just chums here. We're little Jesuses helping each other to be more like Jesus. And we are chums, I hope, as well, but it's not just about that. So let me give an extended conclusion to all this. Having looked at a lot of different verses, different parts of the Bible, let me pull a few threads together and perhaps offer some ideas for what this might mean for us. And what I... At least some of the things that I believe in, let me put it that way on a personal level, about what it means to be a relationship-based church. And you're free to disagree with me or add, add whatever I've missed, and that's fine. But I'd see this, I'd say this. A relationship-based church is a church where we are devoted to one another, and it means something and it means not something. So let me uh, suggest a couple of things. Firstly, this is not a congregation where we chase one another around. There are congregations like that. I've been part of a congregation like that in the past, some of you probably have as well, where we chase people, we chase them around. Someone misses church, we're on the phone five minutes after church is finished, we've gone around to visit them, we've offered them communion, rebuked them with the Bible, and we don't chase people anymore. I don't think it's right to chase people. I don't think it's right. I don't think I or anybody else here is responsible for how each other feel. We're responsible for how we feel. We're not responsible for how someone feels, although we do care about how people feel. We don't chase, and we don't nag, but neither do we avoid, and neither do we neglect. Chasing is not healthy, neglect is also not healthy. Of course, one of the challenges with saying this is that those of us here, many of us here, will feel loved in different ways. And the love language is book series is a focuses on that. So to be honest, I think there are some people I know who feel loved when people chase them and when people nag them. That's, they interpret that as love. Some of us quite like being chased. Some of us hate it. <laughs> and when we're chased, we feel threatened. Produces the opposite effect that the person is thinking they're going to produce by chasing us. We may feel smothered, and when you're smothered, you can't breathe. There are cultural differences, too, that we have to be aware of here. I remember many years ago, somebody from another culture had a death in the family, and I sent them a card and left it until I saw them the following Sunday. And I didn't know, it was a long time ago, and I wasn't as aware of cultural differences as I am now, but what I didn't know was that person from that culture expected a lot more from me and our community. Because in that culture, if someone has a death in the family, you go to the house, you knock on the door, and you bring around some food, and you stay all day. 
and all night, actually, usually. And you sing, and you pray, and you read scripture, and you just, you just hang out. And that person was very disappointed in me that I didn't come physically to the house. And we had a really good conversation later and resolved it all, and we got fine with it. But they were able to explain to me that was what was normal in their culture. And I was able to explain, well, the way I was brought up, you leave people or give them space. And you only go if you're invited. So it wasn't that I was deliberately neglecting, and it wasn't that that person had an unreasonable expectation of me. It's just that we had a clash of cultures. And sometimes this happens, not only in cultures, but even just different backgrounds of family, right? And so that means we need to be patient with each other when we feel like that person doesn't love me. Well, what's the standard of love that you're applying to that person? Are you sure it's Christ-like, or is it your interpretation because of your background, your family upbringing, your childhood, or your culture, or whatever it may be? Maybe you want to go and have a chat with that person and say, can we talk about expectations of love? Hopefully in a safe kind of environment, in a, in a, you know, in a relationship of trust and love, but maybe that's the conversation to have rather than go to the person and say, you don't love me, or I felt unloved because. This kind of accusatory approach tends to push us apart rather than pull us together, bonded in the spirit. It's my belief that most Christians are good-hearted most of the time. It's just that we're a bit blind and dumb and ignorant a lot of the time too. Now, occasionally we do sin against each other too. It's not we're not good-hearted all the time. Well, I'll speak for myself. I don't think I am all the time. And so we do sin against each other and we need to talk about sin when it is sin. But when it's opinion, let's share with each other and help each other learn and grow. Let's educate one another. We've got to also allow for people's capacity of love. Different people have different capacities. If you say to me, the way I would feel loved is if you rang me twice a day. I would say, I appreciate that. I would like to be in the position to be able to ring you twice a day. I appreciate and I validate the fact that that's how you feel loved. And I wish I could do that for you. But I can't practically phone you twice a day. That's just not something I'm, I had the capacity to do. What else could we do? We've got to recognize that some of us have limited time. Some of us have less emotional capacity than others. And the differences between introverts and extroverts are real. Neither one is an excuse for a lack of love. Extroverts and introverts are perfectly both capable of complete devotion to loving relationships. That's, that's, that's possible. It's just that it will look a bit different from one person to another. And sometimes we're not going to love somebody in the way they wish to be loved because in our conviction it wouldn't be wise to do that. These are complex things. I don't have time to unpack them all and I'm missing a lot here. But I'm more bringing up the points so that we can understand that this this. This is an interpersonal, it's an interpersonal space where we are, as a congregation, where we have to learn from each other how to love one another. You don't just switch it on. And just because you get the Spirit of Christ doesn't mean you know properly how to love other people. You may have the heart for it, but in some ways loving other people is a skill. We learn the skill of love and we learn the tools of love, not in some mechanistic sense, but in the sense that we learn better how to do it. And that's why we have each other. Because there are people here who help me to love other people better than I otherwise would do. Sometimes it's just by observing example. And sometimes it's by conversations. And sometimes it's by people telling me, this would be helpful if you did this. And this is why. Time is needed for this to develop. The congregation doesn't become relationship based overnight. It takes time. We need to give time to one another and we need to be patient. Love is patient. Right. 
But we do take initiative. Having made the point that I think nagging and chasing is not healthy, we do, however, take initiative, as somebody said earlier. Taking initiative is so important. And how might that be best done? I don't think there are any rules, but I would suggest that the phrase, I noticed, might be useful. Rather than, you did this, or you made me feel that, I noticed. This is especially helpful in parenting. Or I should say, rather, in helping other parents. Parenting is a very sensitive area, right? If anybody is, you're a parent and someone gives you input on your parenting, oh, you, you really got to prepare yourself to receive. Well, I, I, I do. I just, oh. And rather than your children, maybe I noticed. I remember the first time someone did that to me, maybe 20, 30 years ago. They came up to me and said, I noticed the way you were talking to your son. Um, and the conversation began. And it was very helpful. Gosh, we could go on about this kind of stuff all day. There's so many uh, layers here. Let me try and wrap up. I will in a moment. Love is not essentially a feeling. It is an action. And feelings develop. Of course they do. But that's why loving other people is eminently practical. It's about giving each other our time and our energy the best we can. Congregational events. Let me talk about that for a minute. In terms of congregational unity and relationships. Congregational events are very important. Gathering like this, very important. There's a lot of good reasons in the Bible, which we've talked about before. We need to worship together. But I would say that family is more important than an event. I would say that to validate the fact that many of us have uh, challenging situations with family from time to time. And if you need to be away from the congregation for family uh, needs, then I think that's very legitimate. The Bible does say we must take care of our family. A family event is more important, or a family is more important than a church event. However, on the other side of it, Devotion to the fellowship is essential. Devotion, not rigorous attendance, but devotion is. Devotion to the fellowship is essential if you're going to mature in Christ, if you're going to see your gifts used by God in his kingdom, and if you're going to make it to the end. We need each other. One other thing. The Bible says love one another. It doesn't say like one another. <laughs> I think it's a really important distinction. Well, I'm grateful that you like me. I'm grateful you like me, Dad. Uh, but the Bible command is not thou shalt like one another. The command is love one another. This is very important because in any group of any size, and you'll know this even in your own family probably, we love our families, but we don't necessarily like all of them. Now, you don't have to say, you know, in your own family who that is. And... And I would say this, in this congregation, in this, in us in this room, we need to love each other. We don't have to like each other. Now, I think as you love somebody, you end up usually liking them over time because you, you learn their good qualities, right? So that usually that's where it goes. But just you can't say, I don't want to come to this church because I don't like the people here. That is an ungodly thought. You, you come here to love people because of Christ, not because whether you like them or not. And that's so significant. Love that ends up in a Christ-like friendship is the goal. So, you know, I think about now I've been a Christian, um, you know, getting on 40 years. And the more I think about my life, and this happens whenever you look through photo albums. Penny has been digging out our old photos recently. And you go through old photo albums and... What's, what makes church? 
What makes Norton Lakes Church? What makes, what makes that sense of belonging and of being together and of richness in my Christian life? So much of it is down to the friends I've had. Some of you will know Carlos and Charlotte Bishop. Um, I saw them online in a Zoom thing two, two weekends ago. I hadn't seen it for ages. I just, oh, it just oh, it hit me. I miss them. And I love them. And I found out that Charlotte was having a, an, a, a, a hospital appointment this last Wednesday, and so we prayed about it. And I played football with Carlos so many times and spent time chatting with Charlotte, and Penny and I did. And you just realize this is what the Christian life is about. Having Charlie and Jeanette Hines stay with us for a few days recently, our old friends from Dublin. Just, our, our place isn't that big, you know, and having two extra people in it, which definitely leaves it with us for a while. You know, you cramps your style a bit, um, and you learn whether you like each other quite quickly or not. Uh, and what you like, you know, like, like, like ice cream, Stefan. And uh, you, you learn that pretty quickly. Uh, but you don't care, it cramps your style a bit, but it's okay because there's that love. Um, look at the old photo I showed you last week of the old football team that I played in Manchester. And, and I think about, I think about uh, people that I spent so many hours with, not just playing football, but talking, praying, all these different things. I think, you know, I hear, I'm not going to single anybody out because it wouldn't be fair. There's so many here. That I, you know, it's now, is it 10 or 20 or 30 years? Akin, maybe the longest, apart from Penny, it's over 30 years, Akin and I and Pat and I have known each other. Just how, how, that, how that commitment to love and, and relationship, it means everything. You can lose a lot of other things in life. You may lose your health. You may lose finances. You may lose some other connections with people you value. But if you still have some that where there's a real Christ-like devotion to love to one another, it makes all the difference. And a lot of it is doing the simple things, isn't it? Danny and Becky and Charlotte and Bromley and Penny and I had a curry two weeks, two weeks ago, a week or so ago. Just having a curry. I mean, it's not very complicated, but it's simple things. It's simple things as much as anything. Hanging out with Simon this week for a coffee. I spent time with Simon. We talked about many things. Spent having some coffee with Tunde. Um, was wonderful. I learned a lot about the history of Ibadan and um, many other things. I always come away from conversations with Tunde more, more intelligent than I, I was. <laughs> I, I learned a lot about many, many things. And spending that time praying with Joe uh, on Tuesday this week was just great, just to pray together. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, afternoon tea for Penny and I with Garth and Lissy this coming week. That'll be nice. Uh, Gluten-free, remember. Um, uh, and and I, I, I'm going to a conference in California at the end of February to a teaching, Bible teaching conference. And it's in Los Angeles. And I remember you know, I have some old friends down in San Diego uh, who Penny and I shared a flat with in 1986. Go back that far. Chris and Lynn Smith. And we don't see each other very often. And I thought, well, they're in San Diego. I'm going to be in LA. But I messaged them and I said, any chance we can meet up? They said, no problem. We'll drive up from San Diego. You know, friends don't think about the cost. They're going to jump in their car and drive up. I'm really looking forward to that. Look, I've gone on long enough. I just, I really want to implore myself. I'm not, this is, this, as a congregation, but I, I don't, I'm not, I don't 
consider myself to be particularly gifted at friendships or at love. Uh, I find this stuff really hard. Like I said, it's not complicated, but it is hard. And I find the sacrifices of, of love really quite difficult at times. And so I'm not standing here to preach as such in that way. But I, I implore myself and I implore, implore all, all of us who've been through a tough time with COVID. It's damaged our relationships. I think more than we sometimes realize is to find ways to practice one another Christianity with one another. And keeping it simple, uh, asking ourselves the questions on the, on the handout, what helps you to be relationship-based? And what gifts do you have that can help this congregation to be relationship-based? And what's one action at least you could take in the next seven days that would maintain or increase our relationship-based culture as a, as a body? God decided he would pay any price to restore the relationship between him and humankind by sending Jesus. I'm going to finish on this, and then uh, this is going to come and pray for us. Romans 5, 6 to 11, then we'll take communion together. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The relationship has been restored because God was willing to pay the price of his son on the cross because he had a vision for a relationship-based family. Christ had the heart to go to the cross because he had a vision of a relationship-based family. The people of the New Testament worked through their cultural differences and the Jew-Gentile controversies and all the other difficulties they had because they caught God's vision of a relationship-based family. I pray that we today will catch God's vision and devote ourselves to the kind of life and practices and love that Christ showed us, we can show one another, so the world will know that there is hope, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture, no matter what you've been through, you can be part of a loving family, a loving family that shows the world how great, great God. Come on, come on, come on.